The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, number 11 in our countdown of last year's most popular book bites, the most important, potentially life-changing books of the year, number 11 is A World Without Email by Cal Newport. What would the world be like without email? What would your life be like without it? Those questions may seem pointless. For better or worse, email feels like a permanent fixture in our lives. But in his bold new book, A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload, Cal Newport dares to imagine a future where new forms of streamlined digital communication replace endless email threads and haphazard messaging. A world without email isn't just a fantasy, Cal says. It's coming. Will you be ready for it? Hi, I'm Cal Newport. And I'm a professor of computer science at Georgetown University who also writes about the intersection of technology and culture. Now, I want to share with you today five of the key insights from my new book, A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload. Insight number one, email makes us less productive. Now, this may sound strange at first. If we go back and look at the history of email, we see that it spread very quickly during the early 1990s because it was a more productive way of implementing certain communication tasks. Email was more productive than a fax machine. It was more productive than voicemail. It was more productive than sending around paper memos in those folders with the little red thread ties. So what do I mean when I say it makes us less productive? Well, it wasn't those uses that caused the problem. It is what followed in the wake of email spread. As email moved from office to office, in its wake came as an unexpected side effect, a new way of collaborating. It's what I call the hyperactive hive mind workflow. Once we gave access to low friction digital communication to employees and organizations, we began to do most of our collaboration, most of our coordination, most of our communication in unscheduled ad hoc back and forth messaging. Everything that needed to be worked out, we could just rock and roll in our inbox. Now there's a lot of advantages to the hyperactive hive mind workflow. It's fast, it's easy, it's convenient. If you know how to use email, you know how to work at our company. And so it was very popular. The downside, however, is that if This is how you are coordinating with most of the people you work with. There are going to be a ton of messages generated each day. And not only are there going to be a ton of messages generated each day, but they demand timely responses. We're doing a back and forth here with messages. When you send me a message, I have to get back to you. And if I wait all day before I get back to you, we're slowing down this interaction. So what do I need to do? I need to check the inbox frequently. This was the natural consequence of the hyperactive hive mind workflow is that we all started checking our inboxes way more than we had ever checked communication channels before. One study I looked at shows that the average American knowledge worker is going to send and receive 126 emails a day. Another study I looked at said that the average office worker observed in this particular company was checking their inbox 77 times a day. A big data set I looked at found that we were checking our inboxes once every six minutes on average. This is demanded 
by the hyperactive hive mind workflow because again we have all of these different ongoing asynchronous back and forth ad hoc unscheduled communication threads going on and they have to be tended the problem with this is every time we glance at that inbox that keep up with all these different back and forth conversations our brain goes through a cognitive context shift. It shifts from the thing we were doing to try to change its context to whatever is relevant to these email messages. Switching your cognitive context is an expensive task. It's a non-trivial neurochemical cascade. You have to inhibit some networks. You have to amplify other networks. It takes time, but we don't give it time. We glance at the inbox because again, there's all these messages coming back and forth that we have to keep up with. We initiate a context shift, but then halt it to rip our attention back to the main thing we were working on. So then we try to halt that shift and shift back to the cognitive context of the main thing we're working on. But before we can get completely back to the thing we're working on, we wrench that attention away back to the inbox to check it again, initiating a new context shift, which we stop halfway through and rip our attention back to what we're working on in the first place. And we do this repeatedly throughout the day. The cost of all this aborted context shifting is that we lose our ability to think clearly we begin to feel a cognitive fatigue. That's why by the time you get to two or three o'clock in the afternoon, you sort of give up on hard work altogether and just give in to Slack. You just give in to your inbox. It also makes us anxious. So when I say email makes us less productive, I don't mean that the POP3 or SMTP protocol is somehow not productive. It's a great way to broadcast information or send files. It's much better than the fax machine. What's making us less productive is the hyperactive hive mind workflow that email enabled. It is literally making us dumber it is making it very difficult for us to do serious thinking with our brains, and it is exhausting us. Insight number two, email makes us miserable. Now, this is an aspect of the hyperactive hive mind workflow that has gone relatively underreported. This notion that having an inbox that at all times is filling, and any moment that you're not tending it, it is getting even more full. And it's getting full of messages from other people, people you know, people you care about, people you respect, and they're waiting for you. This is a recipe for anxiety. The human brain takes social interactions very seriously. It is baked into our DNA because throughout most of our species history, carefully tending these one-on-one -on -one relationships could often be the key between survival and death. So we take it very seriously. This part of our brain gets very stressed by the idea that there's people who need us and we're ignoring them. Now you might say, but wait a second, in our office we have norms. Don't expect a response time. In our office, we know that most of those messages aren't that important. It's just Bob from accounting with an update. We know it's not life and death, but that deeper part of our brain is not swayed by such rationalizations. Just like when you feel the gnawing of hunger, telling your gut, there's a meal coming in an hour, no need to worry, we will eat, doesn't make the hunger go away. Because that is a deeper instinct that food is important that doesn't respond to rationalizations. The same thing goes on with email. The inbox fills that makes our deep social networks worried and makes them anxious. No amount of rationalization about workplace etiquette can stop it. And we can actually see this effect in the laboratory. There's one particularly devious experiment I write about where the researchers brought the subject into a room, hooked them up to heart rate monitors, skin galvanometers, etc., when they had them do a sham experiment. Halfway through, they said, oh, your phone is interfering with the equipment. Can we just move it out of the way? It's an electromagnetic thing. As they moved the phone across the room, the research assistant surreptitiously turns off that silence mode on the side of the iPhone. So they would only do this experiment with iPhone users. It had to have that switch on the side. You could turn off the silence mode. 
They would then leave the room. A couple minutes later, they would call or text that phone. Now, the subject could not get up to go get their phone because they had told them, oh, it's really important that you stay in your, your seat because of the, the equipment, etc. But because they had them hooked up to all this equipment, they could see the stress response spike. Hearing that there was communication, someone trying to reach them and not being able to answer it made the subjects very anxious. But think about this. Rationally, they knew it was fine. In fact, they had that phone in Do Not Disturb mode. So they knew I had put this phone in Do Not Disturb mode. I, I am expecting not to hear from anyone. You know, it's fine. I'm only here for a half hour. I'm doing this experiment. I was fine with it. But when the deeper social part of their brain was confronted with, there is someone who needs you and you're not answering it. It made them anxious. It made them stressed and it made them nervous. Rationalizations didn't help. This happens to us with this mode of collaborating, this hyperactive hive mind, by generating messages faster than we can keep up and at all times means that we have this background hum of anxiety of who needs me that I'm not getting back to. And again, norms, etiquette can't solve the problem. That is a deep network. One experiment I wrote about in the book that I thought was interesting is actually Ariana Huffington's company, Thrive, for a while experimented with a tool called Thrive Away. And it was inspired by exactly this effect. If you know there's messages piling up, it's stressful. No matter how you rationalize, that's not a big deal. So they put in place this experimental program where when you were on vacation, instead of just sending an autoresponder that said, okay, I won't be able to respond to you until next week, they would delete the message and send the response that said, your message was deleted, send it after next week. Logically, it shouldn't make a difference, but for the subjects here, it made a huge difference because messages piling versus messages not piling makes a big difference. So this is an important point. Email is not well suited for our ancient social circuits. And in particular, this hyperactive hive mind workflow in which there's constantly messages arriving that are important is very incompatible with our brains. It makes us anxious. There's real psychological harms being caused here by being surrounded by this type of workflow all the time. And it's something we need to keep in mind. All right, insight number three, email has a mind of its own. So here's the question. If the hyperactive hive mind is making us very unproductive because of all this context switching, if it's making us miserable because our human brain can't really handle well piling messages that we're ignoring, why do we decide to work this way? Well, as best as I can tell, having looked at this problem for a while and researched this problem for a while, no one actually decided that this was a good idea. The hyperactive hive mind emerged more or less spontaneously once email was present. It was just a side effect of the natural dynamics between humans and this tool and the way that offices operate. And it was just an emergent side effect. No one intended it. There's no memo from management. There's no Harvard Business Review article saying this is the new way to work. It just happened. We can actually see this in action. One of the stories I tell in my book was of IBM in the late 1980s. IBM decided, let's build an email server, right? This was the 80s before there was a lot of off-the-shelf solutions, but it was IBM. They said, we'll program our own. We know what we're doing. Let's build an internal email server. Now, one of the engineers involved in this project who I interviewed for my book was tasked with doing a survey, a pretty comprehensive survey of all the communication in the office, the phone calls, the memos, that try to figure out how much are people communicating. And they said, let's be really conservative. Let's assume in the worst case that every single bit of communication that happens right now is going to be shifted to email once email is here, because email, as I talked about, is a more efficient way to do a lot of this type of existing communication. So they carefully provisioned a mainframe to be able to easily handle all of the communication that happened in their office. 
they turn on the mainframe, they give everyone email clients. Within a few days, the machine melts down. People began communicating a factor of five to six times more than they ever had before within days of email being introduced. No one from the IBM C-suite sent out an all-hands memo that said, great news, everyone. We need to communicate way more. Being able to communicate more, more messaging, this is going to be the key to productivity. It was just a natural reaction to this tool being here. It's low friction. This hyperactive hive mind way of coordinating is very natural. It's how we coordinate with small groups of people historically. This allowed us to do that for all sorts of groups. It's very convenient in the moment. So this way of working just sort of emerged. Now, I think this is important because when we recognize that this is not intentional, it's just a side effect of the tool being around, then we could be much more critical. Okay, if this was random, doesn't mean it's bad, but it doesn't mean it's good. It means we should really examine it. And when we examine it, we see, wait, it makes us really unproductive and it makes us miserable. Maybe it's time to look for better ways of collaborating in our digital age. Well, this brings us to insight four. Email overload cannot be solved in the inbox. So once we understand the issue is not email the tool, the issue is not the POP3 protocol, it's not the SMTP protocol, it's the hyperactive hive mind way of collaborating that email enabled, it should become clear that we can't fix the excesses of this current age of communication overload in the inbox itself. If we say, oh, let's have better habits, let's batch when we check our emails, let's have better norms. Something I hear a lot from C-suite types. If we just had better norms around our email, we would reach some productivity nirvana. Let's have better etiquette about how we send emails or what we put in the emails. Uh, let's just have better will. I hear this a lot. Remember the crackberry terminology that became popular when the hyperactive hive mind first took off? We were trying to understand why people were checking their phones all the time with respect to the lens of personal addiction. Well, you must have a failure of will. You just like checking this thing all the time. You should stop it. But once we recognize that's the underlying workflow that's the problem, we see we're never going to solve it with better inbox habits or tips or etiquette because the hyperactive hive man demands your attention. If most of the way that you are collaborating and coordinating is through unscheduled ad hoc back and forth messaging, the more time you are not tending these channels, the more harm you're causing. You can't do an email free Friday if you use the hyperactive hive mind because very little will get done on Friday. You can't say, I'm going to check email twice a day if your organization uses the hyperactive hive mind as this main way of collaborating because people need you to check more than twice a day. All the decisions, all the task assignments, all the review, everything is happening through this ad hoc back and forth messaging. So as long as the hive mind is in place as our primary tool for collaboration, we're not going to fix it with better personal habits. We have to replace the hive mind itself with better ways of collaborating. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, there's no one-size-fits-all solution, but there is one metric that we need to really be focused on when thinking about how we collaborate, and that is reducing unscheduled messaging. All of the harm we're talking about here, the, the context-shifting productivity killer and the overflowing message anxiety producer, all of this is caused by the reality that messages could be arriving at any time that need your attention. That causes that as the source of all these problems. So what we need to do is go through all of the different things that I do in my work, our team does in its work, our organization does in its work, and one by one say, okay, how are we implementing this process? And if the answer is the hyperactive hive mind, we have trouble. We need to replace that with something else. Here are some different rules. Here are some different systems. Here are some different strategies. Whatever it takes, 
But one by one, we optimize these processes. We re-engineer these processes to require much less unscheduled messaging. Process by process, you optimize. And that pressure to get back to your inbox gets less and less. So if this is our goal, then we're not solving this with a tool, right? Slack, for example, was just a more efficient way of implementing the hyperactive hive mind. So if you're using the hive mind, you like Slack because it's a slicker tool than email, but you also hate Slack because the hive mind's terrible. So let's do some real quick examples of what these optimized processes might look like. Sometimes it's simple. And let's say as part of your job, you have to set up a bunch of meetings. Switching to a tool like x.ai or Schedule Once or Calendly gives you a way of setting up meetings with people that does not require many back and forth messages. How about Monday? No, Tuesday's better. How about the afternoon? No, how about the morning? You save all those back and forth messages by just giving people one link. Here's all my available times. Choose what works best for you. It's a great example of process optimization because you've reduced not the upfront time, not necessarily convenience, you've reduced unscheduled messaging. Let's look at another example. Let's say you have a client that's constantly emailing you, what about this, what about that, and demanding quick answers. Well, we tend to think in these situations, accessibility is what they prioritize above all. But actually, in these contexts, what is often really prioritized is clarity. If they don't trust you to get something done or get back to them, then they want a quick answer so they can get that thing off of their mind. But I profile a company, for example, in the book. They got around this issue by saying, oh, we have extreme clarity with our clients. They sign a contract up front. Here is how we interact. We have this weekly call. We give you an update. You can ask any questions you have. We then immediately send you written down everything we committed to. So you have it documented. They were very worried that their clients would say, no way, we want accessibility. The opposite happened. Their clients were happy. Great. I don't have to worry about this vendor anymore. Uh, We have something here that works. We have this meeting. They write it down. Great. That's one less thing I have to worry about dozens and dozens of urgent messages now eliminated. Sometimes you need multiple different systems and tools to come together to optimize one of these processes. I mean, imagine you have a team that is working on a new marketing campaign and you don't want to just hyperactive hive mind it and just have everyone's jumping forth back and forth with messages and set up random Zooms. Well, you might use a shared task board like Trello or Flow or Asana where everyone can see what everyone is working on and all the relevant information is attached to the relevant card under a column that indicates its status. And then maybe you have these regularly scheduled, highly structured status meetings. What happened to the thing you were working on? What are you working on now? What do you need from us to make progress? Let's update the board, rock and roll. We'll see you at the next meeting. Again, the goal here is how do we get this work done? How do we work together to accomplish something while minimizing unscheduled messages? Which brings us to our final insight number five, a world without email is inevitable. Now, people often ask, with this book, am I trying to convince the world to change? And I say, no, I'm not at all. The world is going to change. I'm just trying to give people a heads up. The great late management theorist, Peter Drucker, writing it near the end of his life in 1999, looked back at the industrial sector and he said, Between the year 1900 and 1999, this sector grew by 50 times. This growth was so astounding that it generated the wealth on which the entire modern developed world was subsequently built. And they did it by getting very serious about the question of what's the best way to do what we do. The way they were building cars in 1895 looked very different than the way they were building cars in 1925, which looks very different than the way that Elon Musk builds Teslas in 2025. The industrial sector kept asking, what's the best way to do things? 
Drucker then went on to say, okay, where I stand now in 1999, knowledge work is where industrial work was in 1900. We haven't even really got it started asking the question of what's the best way to do things. This current moment of digital enhanced knowledge work, we basically just came up with the first natural convenient way we could think about how to work in an age of networks, which was the hyperactive hive mind. Well, we can all have an email address or a Slack channel. We could just rock and roll. And we've been rolling with it and we haven't been critical and we haven't been asking, is this working? Is there something better to do? We just like that it's simple. We like that it's convenient. But the history of the intersection of technology and commerce tells us that we often start with what's simple and what's convenient, but inevitably what's more effective will win out. We are still very early in this age of digitally enhanced knowledge work. There is so much growth on the table. Peter Drucker's 50x growth is sitting here latent. There is no way that we're not going to go after it. And going after it means moving past the hive mind to things that maybe are hard to figure out and have more upfront costs that are inconvenient, but it's going to make us much more effective, lower worker burnout, lower turnover, way higher quality results produced by all these human brains that we employ in the knowledge sector. So a world without email, by which I mean, of course, a world without the hyperactive hive mind workflow, oh, it's coming. There's too many economic pressures for it not. The only question is, are you going to be out in front of this trend and reap those benefits, or are you going to be trailing behind it? Now, I wrote this book, A World Without Email, to try to help more people be out in front because I think that is the right place to be. So thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this book. That was Cal Newport, author of A World Without Email. I had the great pleasure of speaking with Cal on this podcast when his book came out. You can find that episode by scrolling through our feed or by following the link in the episode notes. Do you miss our interview episodes? Don't worry. Our new season starts later this month, and we've already got a bunch of amazing guests lined up, including Ray Dalio, Jill Lepore, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Kane, David Chalmers, and Daniel Pink. As my kids would say, it's going to be awesome sauce. By the way, how do you like these daily book bites? We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email. Yes, a dreaded email to podcast at nextbigideaclub.com. If you're loving these daily book bites, and I hope you are, you can always find more of them in the Next Big Idea app. There's no better way to get smart fast. With book bites, you can read a book in the time it takes to toast a bagel. And I'm including there the part where you judiciously spread cream cheese all over the bagel. I'm Rufus Griscom, wishing you a great email-free weekend. <laughs>